0: Several weeks ago we began to talk about John chapter 16, uh, John 15 verse 16, Jesus said to his disciples as one of his last statements to them. One of the last things he wanted them to understand is you didn't choose me, I chose you. And we've talked what it means about to be chosen. It means that you've been picked out from uh, from other alternatives. That means whoever the chooser was, they had choices other than you and they chose you. Second thing we saw is that when they chose you, they knew what they were getting. He wasn't fooled. When God chose you, He knew what He was getting. You didn't fool Him. And the third thing is that He's responsible. The one that chooses you is responsible for His choice. So we'd have to run around wondering, you know, God made a mistake with me. First of all, God doesn't make mistakes. And secondly, it's His responsibility, not yours, that He chose you. Not just to be in His family, to be in His kingdom, but for whatever God's chosen you to do, it's his responsibility, not yours. Our responsibility is to do what he's chosen us to do. So we've looked at that. Then we begin to Matthew chapter four, and we look specifically at his calling of several four of his disciples. And there's an interesting thing because it tells us what our next step is, having been chosen. Verse 18. Jesus walking by the Sea of Galilee, saw two brothers, Simon called Peter and Andrew's brother, casting a net into the sea, for they were fishermen. That will become important to us later on. And he said to them, follow me. So the first thing he tells them to do having when he chooses them is to follow him. That's so simple yet so profound that it's so easy to miss all that is in that. And that's really what we've been spending these last couple of weeks talking about. What does it mean to follow him? And we used an example a week or so, last week I think it was, of, of following And I had Brendan come up here and had him follow me around. And we saw that the follow just means you keep your eye on the one you're following. You don't worry about where you're going. You just keep your eye. If you keep your eye on the one you're to follow and you go where he goes, then you will have gotten where he wants you to get. Yeah, that worked. Okay. He got you where he wants you to get. And so it's really that simple. And we went through some examples of that and showed examples of that. And so uh, we talked about the fact that we're called to follow him. But notice what they did, the next step. So He calls us, the first, what He's called us to do. Everything He's called you to do is summed up in this, to follow Him. If we don't understand that part, what we'll do is we'll go do good things for Him. Many people are out there doing good things for Him, but they're not following Him. In Matthew 7, Jesus said to His disciples, I guess in verse 7, He says, on that day, which is when he comes back, many of you are going to say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not cast out demons in your name? Didn't we do many miracles in your name? Didn't we prophesy in your name? And he's going to say, depart from me. I never knew you. In other words, you did things for me, but you never had a relationship with me. So he's called us into a relationship. Then the next thing we saw was in order to enter into that relationship, there's something we have to do. And that's what we're going to finish up today, I believe. Follow me and I will make you fishers of men. Verse 20. And they immediately left their nets and followed him. Notice they could not have followed him if they didn't leave their nets because he wasn't staying where they were. Oh, that'll preach. Follow Him means that you've got to let go of where you are, because He's not staying where He found you. He wants to go somewhere and have you go with Him, but you can't go with Him and stay where you are. I know that sounds simple, but it's where we're living, and you're going to see that today. This is the struggle that most of us go through. He's called us to follow Him, and we want to stay where we are, and follow Him, and you can't do both. So the first thing they do is they let go of their nets. Let's go on and read. They left their nets and followed Him. Going on from there, he saw two other brothers, James the son of Zebedee, and John his brother, and they were in a boat with Zebedee their fathers, mending their nets, which is what they made their livelihood from. And he called them. He chose them also. And immediately they left their boats, and they left their father and followed him. So it begins by you've got to be willing to leave where you are, what you have, and what you treasure to follow Him. If you don't do that, you will not fully follow Him. You're always going through this process because He meets you over here, says, come, follow me, calls you by name, and then He starts going where He wants to take you. And then we want to go with Him, but we don't want to leave the comfort of where we are. We want to go with Him. We don't want to leave the things that have given us value and meaning and we put our trust in. He wants us to follow Him and we want to go with Him, but we want to hang on to the relationships that want to stay here. Many of you, when you came to the Lord, you discovered you had to make a choice with some relationships that you'd had. Some friends of you that didn't want to go where you were going. Maybe some family members that didn't want to go where you were going. I remember when I first got saved, and my father and I had kind of always had kind of a strained relationship, but it was really improving. And it was really, you know, it was opening up, and we we're beginning to develop a relationship. It was so exciting to me. And I got saved, and I began to tell him about it. And he thought I was into some cult, some weird thing. And I mean, it just created a division again. Now I got a choice to make Am I going to follow him? Or am I going to try to hang on with my father? That's my father. There's nothing more. The Bible says we're to honor our father and mother. It's not, but Jesus said, I've come to bring a sword that separates. That doesn't mean Jesus is trying to create strife. The sword represents a choice we have to make. That's right, and they immediately left their nets and their boats and their father and followed him because you cannot follow him and stay where you are. You have to choose, and it's your choice. Otherwise, you'll stay where you are and do what you want to do instead of follow Him and do what He wants, He's called you to do. All right, so what kinds of things do we have to let go of? What, what is it we have to let go of? And that's what we're going to talk about today. Well, Matthew chapter 6, go over there. Jesus tells us some things here. Verse 19. Do not lay up for yourself treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy, where thieves break in and steal. But lay up for yourself treasures in heaven where neither, neither moth nor rust steals, where thieves do not break in and steal. For where your treasure is, that's where your heart will be. By the way, you can't go somewhere your heart doesn't go. In fact, your heart will go there before you. You'll follow where your heart's going, what your heart is after. Now, not the pump that moves your blood around but the heart of who you are, what you care about, what matters to you the most. For the lamp of the body is the eye, therefore if the eye is good, then the whole body will be full of light. light. But if the eye is bad, then the whole body will be full of darkness. If therefore the light that is in you is darkness, how great is that darkness? Now what he's talking about there is this, he's drawing a comparison that we can all understand. The only way light gets into your physical body is through your eyes. It doesn't get in through your ears. It doesn't get in through your fingertips. It gets in through your eyes. And it says, if your eye is evil, that word means diseased, like cataracts. Or you have a, 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 a stigmatism or something like that. That means that light's getting in there, but it's not getting in accurately. The light waves are being bent, they're being distorted, because the lens, the opening of the eye is not clear. So what he goes on to say, because therefore, if your eye is diseased, then the light that's getting in there is darkness. In other words, it's as if it is darkness, as if it were darkness, because it might as well be, because you're not seeing accurately ever been driving down the road and your windows open, you know, and, and, and a, 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 a piece of dust or something blows in your eye and your eye starts watering? You don't keep going along at 55 miles. Of course, you do go 55, don't you? You don't keep going along at that speed, do you? Because your eyes are blurry. You, I mean, there's light getting in, but you don't trust what's getting in because you know you're not seeing clearly. So if you're wise, you will slow down, pull over to the side of the road until you can get your eyes seeing clearly again because it is dangerous to drive on the highway if you're not seeing clearly as well as it is if you're doing something else. I almost had a woman run into me the other day. She came around a corner and she's combing her hair with both hands and she's on my side of the road. That's another message for another day. And that's what he's talking about here. But, the, but the, the, it's not intended to be a lesson in our anatomy and physiology it is a drawing of comparison because what he's going on to say is just as the eye determines the accuracy of the truth you see, the light that gets into your body, in the same way, the condition of your heart determines the accuracy of the spiritual things that get in or come out. And he's talking here about what your heart is seeking after is what determines how much truth is getting into your heart. That's what he's talking about here. And verse 24. No one can serve, and for our place purposes, let's say, follow two masters. He will either hate the one and love the other, or he'll be loyal to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God in stuff. That's what mammon means. Stuff. And he goes on down, of course, the famous verse there is verse 33. He gives the answer, Therefore, seek first the kingdom of God and His righteousness, and all the things you need will be added unto you. By the way, it's not our purpose this morning, but the verses he uses in between verse 24 and verse 33, he says the signs of where your heart is, is what you worry about. If you're worrying about what you're going to wear, and I don't mean just how nice it looks, whether your needs are going to be taken care of, if you're worrying about whether your needs are being taken care of, going to be taken care of, then he says your heart is on those things because don't you know your Father knows what you need before you ask? Yeah. So worry is a sign that our heart is being given over to something other than Him first. And in other words, we put our trust ultimately in stuff. For our, and we need stuff. We need clothes. I'm glad you all put clothes on today. Because Pastor Sam used to say, we want to keep America beautiful. <laughs> <laughs> I'm, and we need houses. We need transportation. We need those things. So he's not saying go, you know, go live on the top of, you know, go live as a hermit, you know, with, with you know, burlap bag sacks on. All top. He's not saying that. He's talking about what has your heart. And he said, when you're worrying about things then what it is is your heart's been given over to that. And so, so you, you can't, your, your value in life, your security in life, your meaning in life, all of those things is not based on stuff, clothes, gadgets, you know, cars. It's got to be based on Him and our relationship with Him. That's the easy part. That's the easy part. Say, well, pastor, I'm struggling with that. Well, all right. First John chapter 2. We're going to move around our Bible today. Well, that's okay. Verse 15. Do not love the world or the things in the world. He doesn't say you can't have them. He's saying don't love them. Because you can have things you haven't given your heart to. But you can't love something without giving your heart to it because where your treasure is, that's where your heart will be also and that's ultimately what this is all about. Do not love the world nor the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life is not of the Father, but is of the world, and the world is passing away and the lust of it, but he who does the will of God abides forever. In Hebrews chapter 11, don't have to turn there, we'll get there later on, verse 24 through 26, talking about, in this case, Moses and the choice he had to make. And it said, he esteemed he esteemed. He esteemed the the, the riches of Christ of higher value than the passing pleasures of sin. The passing... And he was being prepared and groomed to be the next pharaoh. King, absolute ruler of the richest, most powerful nation in the world at the time. And he walked away from it to follow Christ, although it wasn't Christ himself yet. God's purpose for his life. He chose that above the passing pleasures of the riches of that world at that time, to go into a place that actually was giving up everything and suffering, but Moses was highly esteemed by God for that. So that's the beginning, because they left their nets, they left their stuff. Doesn't mean you can't have them, but you've got to leave it first, and follow Him, and then all those things will be added back unto you. But you've got to let them go in here first. You gotta let it go in here first and put him first. Seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness and all that you need will be added unto you. In other words, he's gotta be your provision. When I was first saved, I was working as a lawyer in a large law firm in Boston, making two and a half times what we spent. It was I mean, we were we were blessed. And I've somewhere got a hold of this idea early on that God was our source. Well, that's easy to believe when you're making two and a half times what you spend. Got a nice office, beautiful view. God's my source. God's my source. Then he called us to leave all that, to move 1,600 miles away, to go to a school where I had no job. And in the process, decided to bless us with two extra children along the way that we were not expecting but had been blessed by. So now I have no job, no income, no health insurance, and two more mouths coming. That's when you find out what you believe. It's a long story, but God took care of us, provided for us, paid everything off, provided things for us. It was a wonderful... Because God is my source. I've had to go through that several times in my life where God's called me to leave where I was, where I had a nice, comfortable job to go do His will. And even... But I knew that God would take care of me. Why? Because I learned early, God is my source, not that job. God is your source. There's some of you right now that don't have a job and what you're doing is you're trying to find a job. No, you've got to recognize God's your source and He will use jobs as a way of providing for you but God's got to be your source not that job because what you're doing is some of you are chasing after the job instead of serving God with your heart. Put Him first and all the things you need will be added unto you. Put your job first and that becomes your God. Okay. That's the easy stuff. All right. Now, let's go look at, uh, at, um, at Matthew chapter 6. Again. Take he you, verse 1, "...take heed that you do not do your charitable deeds before men to be seen by them, otherwise you have no reward from your fathers in heaven." Therefore, when you do charitable deeds, do not sound the trumpet before you as the hypocrites do, in, hypocrites do in the synagogues and in the streets that they may have glory for men. Assuredly, I say to you, they have their reward. But when you do a charitable deed, do not let your left hand know what your right hand is doing, that your charitable deed may be seen in secret. And your Father who sees in secret will himself reward you openly. And when you pray... Do not pray like the hypocrites do. They love to pray standing in the synagogues and on the corners of the street that they may be seen by men. Assuredly, I say to you, they have their reward. But when you pray, go into your room and when you've shut your door, pray to your Father who is in the secret and your Father who sees in secret will reward you openly. What's this talking about? How does this fit into letting go? I believe, at least for me, the most difficult thing to let go of is what other people think of me. Because in order to follow him, you've got to let go of what other people think of you, and focus on what he thinks of you first. Now here, Jesus is talking about the Pharisees, who were hypocrites. A hypocrite is someone who wants to think, make you think, there's something or somewhere they're not. They know where they are, but they want you to think they're somewhere they're not. And here what they were doing is they were, they, were, they, were, they were giving, tithing, giving, but they were doing it in such a way that other people would be impressed by how spiritual they were. And they were praying openly, and, and that, nothing wrong with praying openly, we do that on Tuesday nights here. But they were doing it with the intention of people hearing how beautiful their prayers were and how wonderful they were. So this is a person Who's intentionally trying to project an image out of pride uh, or or out of ambition of how spiritual they are? They're trying to have other people think of them a certain way on purpose. And let's go over and look at how God sees that. You already suspect it's not good. Matthew twenty three. Verse 27. Woe. Now that doesn't, that's not a good start right there. That's not like woe to the horse. That's God saying to you, Woe. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites. You are like whitewashed tombs, which indeed appear beautiful outwardly, but inside they're full of dead men's bones and uncleanness. Now get this image. Whitewash, I guess we don't use it very much anymore, but whitewash was a water-based, very weak covering that when you put it on something, it looked white and clean until it rained. And then it washed off because it was water-based and had no substance to it. And he said, you're like whitewashed tombs, which means on the outside, you look nice and clean. But what's got a tomb got on the inside of it? dead man's bones that are rotting. He said, here's how I see you. I don't look at the outside. I look at the inside. And what I see inside is your stinking attitude. I see your envy. I see your pride. I see your jealousy. I see your your prideful ambition. I see you putting people down. I see you not lifting up the poor and the weak. And I see you harboring Anger and strife in your heart towards other people, all the while smiling and looking so nice on the outside. Because you're, you, you want to impress people with how, what, what you're like. Now we're talking about what we left to let go of to follow him. And, and so, well, let's read on. Verse 28. Even so, you also outwardly appear righteous to men, but inside you're full of hypocrisy and lawlessness. Now, that's one type of image that people present. But I suspect most of us are not there. But it's basically a pride and arrogance. I want you to think I'm somewhere... And I'm going to make you look... And I don't care what I'm like on the inside. But most of us here, I suspect, are not in that place. So it's easy to read those scriptures and say, well, they, you know, it's, I know that's the Pharisees. That doesn't apply to me. But let's go over to Philippians 3, and we'll see something a little more subtle, which is where most of us, or at least I know, I'm preaching to me today, where I need to grow, or I'm in the process of growing. Philippians chapter 3. We're going to start in verse 3. Well, let's start in verse 1. Finally, my brethren, rejoice in the Lord. For me to write the same things to you is not tedious, but for you it's safe. That means to hear the same message again is okay. Beware of dogs. That's not four-legged dogs. That's two-legged dogs. Beware of evil workers. Beware of the mutilation. What he's addressing here was there were people coming into the church in Philippi and they were telling them that in order to be Christians they had to be circumcised and go under the old law and the systems of the old law. So the mutilation here is kind of a play on words. In other words, they're convincing you to mutilate your body but it has no effect, no spiritual effect. But we are of the circumcision, the true circumcision, who worship God in spirit and rejoice or glory in Christ Jesus, having no confidence in the flesh. Now the word rejoice there means boast. So he says what we are, we are of the true believers who worship God in the spirit and we boast or place our glory in Christ Jesus and have no confidence or boast in the flesh. That means my own flesh, what my own flesh accomplishes. Verse 4, though I might also have confidence in the flesh. So now he's going to tell you what he used to put his confidence in when it came to evaluating himself. We all have an image of ourself of how, you know, either we're, you know, we're, we're coming along pretty well or we're really dragging behind. We may be conscious of the person near us. Maybe it's our spouse. Maybe it's a friend. Maybe it's somebody we don't even know, but we just saw that beautiful smile on their face and tears in their eyes when they're worshiping. So we form an image of where we think they are and then we compare ourselves to where, well, ourselves with where we think they are and we either think we're better than they are further along or we're behind them. It's just human nature to compare. It's not right, but it's what we tend to do. And so Paul's talking here about the things that he had built his life on, his confidence in himself, his, well, his sense of identity. That's a good way to put it. His sense of identity was in the things he's about to give. This is his resume, his spiritual resume. This is, if you asked Paul, you know, who are you? This is what he would have said. In fact, that's what he said he was. You know, if somebody asks you who you are, what, do you, what answer do you give? Do you tell them what you do? say, I'm an electrician, I'm a plumber, I'm a lawyer, I'm a doctor, or that's not who you are, that's what you do. In fact, that's what God uses to provide your, 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 your resources from. That's not who you are, because that stuff's staying here. They don't need lawyers and doctors in heaven, plumbers, okay? That stuff all stays here. Your tools stay here, the tools of your trade stay here. It's of no value up there, okay? what Paul's talking about, the things that he built his life on that that made him look a certain way in other people's eyes. Well, you with me on this? Okay. Let's go take a look at some of them and then we'll see what he did with them. So he says, you know, when we have no confidence in the flesh, that means confidence in what I have done with my life. Though I might have confidence in the flesh, if anyone else thinks he has confidence in the flesh, I even more. In other words, I did pretty well. Circumcised the eighth day of the stock of Israel. Now, most of these things won't mean a lot to us, but if you were a Jew in that day, this meant you were something special. Circumcised the eighth day of the stock of Israel. That means I basically, I qualified as a Jew because I went through the ritual by which I entered into the covenant. Of the tribe of Benjamin. a uh, Hebrew of the Hebrews. That means as I, if if if... No, I was not just a Hebrew, I was of the elite of the Hebrews. Concerning the law, I was a Pharisee. In other words, I was at the top of my career. Concerning zeal, persecuting the church. Concerning righteousness which is under the law, Blameless. So these were all my things. These are the things that, if that I had, when I had confidence in who I was, this is what I based my confidence in. I kept the law as best it could be cut by a human being. I had gone. In fact, in Acts it tells us he he sat at the seat of Gamaliel, who was who was because they didn't go to schools like we do. They sat under they 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 sat, they apprenticed under a rabbi, and the greatest teaching rabbi of his day was a man named Gamaliel. So basically saying I went to Harvard, Yale, you know, one of those level schools. I, was, I, went, I had the best education. I had a doctorate from the best school I could go to. I was the leading man in my field. These are all the things that I was, that I used to put my confidence in for who I am. That when I, what I wanted people to see about myself, that my value was in. And the world system is based on these things. Okay. Different cultures, different age groups have a different framework, but we all do the same thing. It's like you move into a new job, you've got to find out what's their value system in there. You know, how, how do you get to be the most popular? How do you get to be the, the best at something? But look what he did with it when he came to Christ. Verse 7, But what things were gained to me, these things I have counted as loss for Christ. Counted means He exercised His will. It is based on an accounting term. And every year, you know, when we, people in, our, in the office have to, you know, post, the, 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 when we pay a bill... That bill gets posted to an account, so at the end of the year, we can see how much did we spend on, on postage, how much did we spend on freight, how much did we spend on salaries, how much did we spend on these things. So every check has to be posted to an account. And actually in the software now, you've got to choose which side it goes on. It's, the, it's, an, it's a double entry accounting system. So you've got to choose whether it's a debit or a credit. And Paul says, "I chose to take all those things that before I had put it in. And this may not be correct accounting-wise, but it sounds makes it clear to you. I, I put in my credit column. I now moved over to the debit column. I reevaluated that it was no longer an asset. To where my heart was. That was an act of his will. I counted all things as loss." Now, he didn't lose all all the things. He still had the experience he had. He still had the passion he had. He still had the degree he had. But in terms of the value they meant to him, he counted them. He no longer considered them the basis on which he evaluated himself. And he did it as a transaction. See, when you go to buy something, you make an evaluation of whether or not what you're going to get is worth more to you than the money you're going to give up for it. She'll get upset at me for this, but that's okay. I have a pair of casual shoes I wore that I've worn all for, for years, and and it just I, I was a, I started to cry the other day because I noticed there was a hole in the bottom, <laughs> and the leather was separate. It's a pair of old boat shoes. The, the leather's starting to separate. Them. Now these are, these are little things, okay? And I she says you got to get rid of them, which means she's going to try to throw them out. <laughs> which she wouldn't do. But 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 uh and so I realized I got to go I I got I've got to I've got to yeah, replace them. <laughs> so I went into a local store and I you know, I found a pair of shoes that were comfortable and they're not as good as those boat shoes, but they were comfortable. And I go up and I'm trying to I'm look the price was I don't like $75, not worth that to me. And then I turned the tag over, it was on sale for half price, oh. And I got to the checkout counter and there was 20% off, oh. Now, now listen to me, for $75, I want to know I'm going to like those shoes and they're going to be comfortable. But when you drop it down in half and then 20% off of that, the risk is a lot lower. Now, this is how you think. Now I don't mind paying whatever it was, thirty dollars for those, because they're worth more to me now than the thirty dollars I'm going to give up. That's a decision I made. I valued those shoes, new shoes, more than the thirty dollars that I gave for them. Now, by the way, if you if you if you ever buy something and you weren't sure whether you got a good deal, all the way home you're still thinking about ah, oh, I overpaid for that. I overpaid for that. I overpaid for that. That means you haven't let go of the money yet. Oh, you physically have, but in here you haven't. You're still thinking, oh, I know I ever paid for that thing. And then you find out somebody paid, got them for less. Now you're really upset. See, because you haven't let go of the money yet. You're still holding on to the nets. It's a transaction Paul made. I counted weighing. All those things I'd built into my life and the value that they were giving me through other people's attention. And I looked at that and I looked at following him and what I was going to get out of that. And I had to make a choice, just like James and John and Peter and Andrew did. And I let go of all that that meant to me so that I could follow him. Now, let's go on because it gets better. Yes, indeed, verse 8, I count all things loss, the New King James says, for the excellence of the knowledge of Christ Jesus my Lord. But other translations say, for the surpassing value. (laughs) Yes, I count all things as loss, and actually the Greek word there is a little stronger than loss. It's rubbish, but it's even stronger than that. I count it as something dirty I don't want on my hands. I just want to get it off as quickly as I can. I count it that way. The world counts these things as valuable. My, 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 my associates, my, the other Pharisees, count these, that's what they have built into their lives. But I chose to count it as, as, as rubbish. It actually is dung in order for the surpassing value of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord, of a personal relationship by following Him, for whom I've suffered the loss of all things, and I count them rubbish, that I may gain Christ and be found in Him Not having my own righteousness, which is from the law, but a righteousness through faith in Christ. What's your confidence in? We're not under the law. No, but most of us operate under it to some degree. How do you feel about yourself spiritually? Is it based on how well you've been performing? When you go to pray, is your confidence based on how good you were yesterday? Well, I've read my Bible five straight days in a row. I prayed a little bit yesterday and the day before, so today I come to pray and I've got confidence. Is your confidence based on what you were doing? Or is it based on the Word of God that says come boldly to the throne of grace? The word boldly there means openly and without reservation. Is your confidence in the Word of God, faith in that Word's true about you no matter how you've been? Or is your faith in how you've been acting. Your confidence in how... Because if your confidence is in how you've been acting, you're trusting in the law to that degree. Because right. the law is based on how well you've done. Grace is based on how well He did. Amen. Now, we need to do the right things, but that's not the basis of our standing in relationship with Him. What's your trust in? And it's very subtle. It can be very subtle. All right. Verse ten: I do this that I may know Him. In other words, I can't truly know Him if I'm still putting my trust in all the things that I've done. I can know about Him, but I can't know. I can't really follow Him and know what He's like and let I let go because they let go of their nets, they let go of their boat, they let they let go of everything they had that they put their confidence, their trust in because they couldn't hold on to those things. And follow him. Well, we may not have nets and boats, although you may. But what he's talking about, what's your value in life based on? What's your confidence in yourself based on? Or lack of confidence, because that works just as much as where your heart is. In order to follow him, you've got to let go of all that stuff and just follow him. Then he becomes your identity. He becomes who people see you as. And that's where we're headed. But you can't do that if, you don't, if you're not willing to make the decision to let go of this stuff. All right, now let's deal with why that's so hard. Let me ask a question. And, and I, can anybody relate to this? I just want to show I'm not just talking to me this morning. And the rest of you need to get honest (laughs) or need to listen more. I believe most of us struggle with this to some degree or another. All right. But Paul did because we're going to see at the end he wasn't there yet either. It's a process. Turn with me to Proverbs 29 because we're going to get now to why this is such a challenge and what the real issue is and then get some help of how to overcome it. Proverbs 29, verse 25, the fear of man brings a snare, but whoever trusts in the Lord will be safe. Now, the word fear, in one sense, means afraid of because something bad can happen to me. But it also can mean a reverence or respect for. That's not that we're not to respect men, but the choice here is do I value what men think of me more than I value what God thinks of me? And here he's saying the fear of what man thinks of me is a snare. The fear of man is a snare that the enemy uses, and he builds it into our life at a very early age. Not everybody to the same degree. One of the real challenges we have in this generation is because this generation is being raised, in many cases, without a father in the home. Or, in my generation, they were raised with fathers in the home, but they weren't really emotionally there. They were busy with their careers. Busy. I mean, I had a father and a stepfather, and neither of them were literally there emotionally for me as an example to build things into my life. So although I had them around, they were. I know that I had a father. I knew he was. I could talk to him, but he didn't put anything into my life. So I always had this drive to get his approval. And I had to work to overcome and still do to some degree because it's like way down inside and that little boy inside still looking for the approval and many of the, of the snares that people fall into come because they're still looking for the approval of a parent that they didn't get when they were a child and they're trying to find it from other people because it's a hole inside that has to be filled and the enemy knows that and plays on that because it is a, a snare is a trap which means someone has laid it with the idea of catching you in it so that they can hold you in their power and their bondage. And the need for approval. and with thought, I mean, human nature is we want to be approved. That's okay. But I'm not talking about it. I'm talking about a strong drive that makes me do th- I have to please people more than God. It's a snare from the enemy built into our lives, in many cases, at a very early age. And so it starts by recognizing, first of all, that that's in there. That's why I did that. That's why I gave in to that person when I know it wasn't right, but I, want, I did what they told me to do, because I'm down inside, I'm looking for some their approval, even though I know it was wrong. recognize the reason you did that is because you're looking for something that you may not have gotten as a child. You need that acceptance and approval that ultimately we can only get from God. Yeah, that's it. Boy, but, you, oh, but you can't get it from God until you're willing to let go of the fact that I can't, I, I'm not going to get it from man. Because I can't go get it from God while I'm still holding on to my desire to get it from man. You can't do both. It's not just about money, like serving God or mammon. This is where we live. The fear of man brings a snare, but he who trusts in the Lord will be safe. Matthew chapter 10. I should have told you to keep something in Matthew. You'll know where Matthew is by the time we're done here. Now, there's some harsh words we're going to hear in here, but there's a point I want, to, I want you to see. And he's talking to his disciples here to prepare them. If you look at the beginning of this chapter, he's commissioning them to go out while he's still with them here. We're going to pick up in verse 24. A disciple is not a, a disciple, is a follower. A disciple is not above his teacher, nor a servant above his master. It's enough for a disciple that he be like his teacher, and a servant like his master. If they've called the master of the house Beelzebub, which is basically devil, how much more will they call those of his household? Look at verse 26. Therefore, do not fear them, for there's nothing covered that will not be revealed, or hidden that will not be known. Whatever I tell you in the dark, speak in the light. The reason many of us are shy and timid about speaking the things He says is because we're afraid of what people are going to think of us. Whatever I tell you in the dark, speak in the light. Whatever you hear in the ear, preach on the housetops. And do not fear those who kill the body. That's the worst they can do to you. But they cannot kill a soul. Rather, fear Him who is able to destroy both soul and body in hell. Are not two sparrows sold for a copper coin and not one of them falls to the ground apart from your father's will? But the very hairs of your head are all numbered. Do not fear, therefore, for you are more valuable than many sparrows. Now, in those verses, I've counted the word fear appears four times. Do not fear man. Do not fear those who who can kill your body. Do not fear what they can do to you but instead fear God and who He is and what He can do. If you're going to fear somebody, fear God. Fear doesn't necessarily mean here afraid of and run away from. It means they have such an effect in your life that you're going to do what they say. So it's the fear of man that in many of our cases keeps us from obeying God. And here he's talking about opening our mouth and saying what he says. Oh, now, some of you are just more bold naturally, and you just, you know, you'll speak to people with a drop of a hat. But most of us are timid about that. And underneath it is, well, what are they going to think of me? What are they going to think of me? And that's basically the fear of man. Yeah. And we've seen in Proverbs 29, there's a snare in that. There's a snare in that. And in order to follow Him where He wants to take us, we have to let go of the fear of man. Because we cannot go where He's taking us and do what He wants us to do if we're more afraid of man than we reverence and fear Him. We have to make a choice. Okay. Okay. Now, let's begin to see how the answer is here. Romans chapter 8. If I were going to be marooned on a desert island, and I could have only one chapter there with me of the whole Bible, it would be this chapter. In fact, I've got most of it memorized just in case that happens and I don't have a Bible with me. It is the complete gospel in this chapter. But we're going to look at, at, starting in verse 31, give you a little background here. What he's been talking about um, is, is how inadequate we are in ourselves to do a number of things. First of all, to save ourselves. And then in verse uh, 26 and 7, he talks about prayer. You know, we, we, we're not a, we don't know what to pray as we ought to pray, but the Spirit helps us, takes hold together with us against those situations. And then he says in verse 28, uh, he says, you know, God causes all things to work together for good for those who love him and called according to his purpose. And then he goes on and talks about this call. Isn't that what we're talking about, this choosing? Because what he says about it is whom, whom, he, uh, uh, whom he foreknew, he also predestined. That means planned for. And whom he predestined, he called. That's chose. So he's talking about you. So he knew you before the world was formed. And He chose you before the world was formed. And whom He predestined, whom He he called, whom He called, He justified. Made you right through Christ. And then He goes into verse 31 and says, What shall we say to these things? If God be for us, and He's just proven how much for us He is, who can be against us? Who can bring a charge against God's elect? God's the one who justified us. By the way, there's only only two who legally have a right to bring a charge against you it's God and Jesus. And he's going to answer both of them here. Verse 33. Who shall bring a charge against God's elect? Or God, the ones God's chosen? That's who we're talking about. He chose you. Who's going to bring a charge against the ones God chose? Well, there's only two. One of them's God, but he's the one that justified you. So why would he bring a charge against you when he knew all that stuff, paid for it, and justified you? Alright, there's only one other. Who is he that condemns? Is it Christ Jesus? He died. Furthermore, he's been risen. He's even at the right hand of God, and He's making intercession for you. So why would He charge you? When He's the one that paid the price, went into hell, was raised from the dead, sitting at the right hand of the Father, praying for you to make it. Why is He going to charge you? So who's left? Nobody that counts. That's what He's saying here. Who has a right to condemn you? The only two that do... Obviously won't. They're the ones that paid for you. So why would they condemn you? Who's left? Nobody else that counts, including you. You're included in the who can bring a charge. Psalm 118. you're a man he's a snare Psalm 118 verse 6 the Lord is on my side so whatever you're facing this morning whatever situation you're in however you feel about yourself the Lord is on my side I will not fear what can man do to me That person that intimidates you, whether it's at work, maybe in your house, maybe it's a (laughs) mother-in-law, maybe it's your mother, maybe it's your father, maybe it's, I don't know, maybe it's your boss. What can they do to you compared to who God is? If He's for you, what can anybody do to you? Because most of what they do to us occurs between your left ear and your right ear. In other words, it's in here. But what can they do to you? The worst thing they can do is take your life and you're promoted. What's the worst they can do to you? The worst they can do is kill you. Well, hey, then I'm out of here. Paul said... I don't know whether... Because they were threatening him. Philippians 1. I don't know whether to stay or let him take me. Actually, I figured it's better off if I go for me, because then I'm going to be with Christ. But I've realized it's for your advantage for me to stay. So he held on to this life, not because he wanted to, because it was what it was the most valuable to him. He held on to this life because he knew that was what the people that he loved needed. Psalm 112. Wow, this is so good. Blessed, the man, blessed is the man who fears the Lord and delights greatly in His commandments. His descendants will be mighty on the earth. The generation of the upright will be blessed. Wealth and riches will be in his house. This is what you get by letting go of the fear of man and embracing the fear of God. Wealth and riches will be in his house, and his righteousness endures forever. Instead of a snare, this is what you get. Under the upright there arises light in the darkness. Uh, look at verse 5. A good man deals generously, graciously, and lends. He will guide his affairs with discretion. Look at this. By fearing the Lord and not man, surely he will never be shaken. The, the Bible says in Peter, Peter, I think it's 2 Peter, says there's coming a time at the end when everything that can be shaken will be shaken. The foundation will be tested. What you put your trust in will get shaken. And the only thing that will remain is God and anything that's built on him. So we're talking now about building your life on him. Because then no matter what happens around you, you won't be shaken. The righteous will be in everlasting remembrance. He will not be afraid of evil tidings. His heart is steadfast, trusting in the Lord. His heart is established. He will not be afraid until he sees the desire upon his enemies. Isaiah 51. Verse 12. This is God speaking. I, even I, am He who comforts you. Who are you that you should be afraid of a man who will die? And of the son of a man who will be like grass, who is made like grass. And you forget the Lord your Maker, who stretched out the heavens, laid the foundations of the earth. You have feared continually every day because of the fury of the oppressor, and that's not just an enemy coming against you. That's what people think of you. But that can be an oppression. It's a bondage to live under the fear of what man thinks of me. I don't dare say this. I don't dare do this. What are they going to think of me? That's an oppression. When, because of the fury of the oppressor, when he is prepared to destroy, and where is the fury of the oppressor? The captive, and the, the captive exile hastens, and he will be loosed. The captive, excuse me, the captive exile hastens that he may be loosed, that he should not die in the pit, that his bread should not fail. But I am the Lord your God. We're talking about, he says, you're afraid of man and he's going to die. He's, his life is like the grass. It's going to burn up. We see all this beautiful lush grass I've got right now because of all the rain. August is going to be a real test of it. When there's no rain for a while, the sun's beating down on it. And, and man's life is like that. The man you're afraid of, the one you're trying to impress, the one who, who, whose value means so much to you, he's going to hear today and gone tomorrow. But the one we pull away from, the one we're afraid to follow, he's the Lord who divided the seas, whose waves roared. The Lord of hosts is his name. And I have put my words in your mouth, he said. I've covered you with the shadow of my hand, that, my, that I may plant the heavens, lay the foundation of the earth, and say to Zion, you are my people. I planted you. I chose you. I've called you. I gave my son's life in your place. I give value to you. Why do you care what man thinks of you? Why do you let man control what you're going to do for me or not do for me? Why do you let man whose life is like that he's here today and gone tomorrow and most of those men who you're afraid of are not in the kingdom of God when they breathe their last breath they're not going to go be with him where you are they're going to go the other direction and we let them move who we are we let them intimidate what we can say When the God who saved us and loves us and gives us His value is the God who's formed the heavens and the earth with the breath of His mouth. The God who parted the Red Sea to deliver His people whom He had called and provided for His people. That's the God who chose you. Among all the people He could have chosen, He chose you, gave His Son's life in your place. And I'm preaching to me as much as I am to you. That's where my value comes from. He chose me. What do I care what any man thinks of me? But I can't follow him and speak what he says to speak and do what he says to do if I'm so worried about what other people are going to think about me when I do that. I can't follow him and hold on to my nets, my boats, my father, my mother, what other people think of me. I can't hold on to them and follow him. So I've got to do what the Apostle Paul did. I've got to make a choice, an act of my will whereby I choose how I'm going to count that stuff. I'm going to count it as loss. I'm going to count it as refuge. I'm going to count it as dirt that I want off of my hands so that I may follow him and know him. Now Paul goes on to say we didn't get there in the rest of that discussion in Philippians chapter 3. Not that I've already arrived. Not that I've already arrived. But I press on that I may lay hold of that for which Christ Jesus laid hold of me, chose me, that I may lay hold of that for which He chose me. And this one thing I do, forgetting what lies behind, I press on for the upward call of God that's in Christ Jesus. Forgetting the nets, forgetting the boats, all the things that used to be value to me, tell me who I am. Forgetting those things, I've turned around and I am pursuing the upward call. In other words, I'm following him. I'm following him. I haven't arrived yet, but I made the choice. I'm turning off that thing, those things. It doesn't mean I can't have them, but they don't have that place to me that they used to have. Why? Because there's a surpassing value of knowing Him that once you know Him... Every void, every hole, every need, every ache, every longing will be filled up to overflowing. Because what you're longing for, what you're trying to get from other people can only be satisfied by knowing Him. Not knowing about Him, not doing His will, that's all involved, but it's knowing Him. He made you to run on Him. Yes. I read somewhere by scientists, the scientists, and you wouldn't, don't want to do this, that technically your car could run on peanut butter because it's an engine that runs on combustion and combustion requires carbon and peanut butter has carbon in it. But I strongly suggest, <laughs> urge you, implore you, entreat you, don't fill your engine up with peanut butter, because it was not designed to run on it. Went to fill my car up the other day, and they says, does this car take regular or premium? Because they wanted to know what it was made to run on. A human being was created by God to run on a relationship with Him. Yes. Amen. And when we run our life fueled by anything else other than a relationship with Him, it's like putting watered-down gas in your tank. Or worse, peanut butter. It creates an ache and a void that only He can fill. So it's not just letting go of all that's given me value. Paul didn't do that. When he took a look at what was offered him and he got a taste of what was offered him, it was so easy to say this stuff is just rubbish compared to the surpassing value of knowing him. Peter And James and John must have had a taste of it enough that they dropped their nets when they saw they had the chance to follow him. They didn't understand it all because a little later on, Jesus has a whole crowd following him. It's in John chapter 6. And he begins to say some hard things. He says, in order to follow me, you've got to eat my body and drink my blood. And 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 the crowd that was following him because they got food and they were healed and all these blessings. Oh, this is good, but we don't have time. They followed him because of the blessings they were getting. When he said some hard things, they stopped following him. Because they weren't following him, they were following the blessings. Are you following him? Are you following the blessings? And he turns to Peter, the disciples, and says, Are you going to lead me too? And Peter says, you can tell he thought about it. He said, we don't know where else to go. Who else has the words of life? Who else has been able to satisfy that need down inside that my nets, my boats, and even my father couldn't satisfy? So I don't know where we're going. I don't understand what you've just done. I just know I'm not leaving you because you're the only thing I've ever found that's filled that hole and void inside of me. Come follow me and I'll make you fishers of men and immediately they let go of everything in their life that had been their basis of value and meaning and importance and they just followed him and that's his call for you and for me. Let's pray. Father, we, we stand today with the psalmist and say, who, who is man? Who, who are we that you would choose us? But We see in your word the answer is not at all who we are. It's who you are. You have called each of us that is here this morning. You've not called us to join a church. You've not called us to join a movement. You've not called us to believe certain things. You called us simply to follow you. We recognize this morning, Lord, that the thing that stands in the way from fully, completely following you in so many of our lives is things we're holding on to that mean something to us we've allowed to mean more than you mean to us, but that's because we really don't know you. So this morning we are beginning to face and realize that we're going to have to let go of those things that have meant so much to us in order to have you and to know you. We thank you that you've given to us the precious Holy Spirit. To come and live inside of us and enable us and strengthen us to let go of whatever it is we have to let go of. In your word, you're one of the prayers is that we be strengthened by your Spirit in our inner man, that Christ be formed in us, that being rooted and grounded in love, we would come to know with all the saints the breadth and length and height and depth, and to know the love of Christ that passes understanding. We be filled with all of your fullness. And Paul goes on to pray now unto him who's able to do exceeding abundantly beyond all we can ask or think, according to the power of the Spirit who's in us. We pray today, Father, that as we prepare to leave this place of worship, that your precious Holy Spirit would give us boldness and confidence and strength to let go of what we've seen and trusted in and to follow after you. This week, open our eyes that we may see those areas where we have treasured and feared and reverenced something above you because we hesitate to let go of it, to follow you, so that you can begin to work in those areas. We thank you for that in Jesus' name. Amen.